So we turn in Job 20, again reading at that entire uh, chapter. Again, the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Give your attention to the reading of it. Job chapter 20. God's word. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered and said, Therefore, my thoughts answer me, because my feelings within me. I hear censure that insults me. Out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. He cast, God cast them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his own, of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glintering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid upon, laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So there is a phenomenon that is both frustrating and yet somewhat magnetic. Now, this phenomenon most often occurs in meetings 
And the bigger the meeting, the worse it can be. And this is when a decision is being discussed and everything has been said, but not everyone has said it. People are tired, but they keep seeking the floor to repeat endlessly the same points. Speech after speech keeps kicking the dead horse. And it's even worse when the speaker admits that he knows he's repeating, but he appeals to a conscience and he still says his piece. His heart orders them. He can't remain silent. Yeah, the Spanish Inquisition couldn't dream up of a more painful torture device. And yet people still have to speak up. Well, this is what Zophar basically does in our chapter. His friends have made their point twice before, but this isn't enough because Zophar hasn't said it himself yet. But as Zophar drones on, he makes us ache for something new that brings us comfort in our Savior. So Job has taken his seat, the floor is open, and Zophar rises for his second speech. Now, back in his first speech, back in chapter 11, Zophar was a bit of a drill sergeant as he laid into Job rather harshly. If you'll remember, he called him a loquacious fool and hollow of heart, by which he meant empty-headed. He did, though, in that chapter, demand that Job repent and so that he didn't suffer the fate of the wicked. Despite his uh, severe lashing, Zophar did give Job a bit of hope. Just repent, and it will all be better. Well, as he stretches his voice for another go-around, Zophar has lost any optimism or hope towards Job. Yet he opens by excusing why he must say something. He says, "'My disturbed thoughts urge me to respond,' because of my feelings inside of me. Now, he admits a certain reluctance to say something, but he has to because his feelings compel him. And the primary feeling coercing him is being offended. Note he says he hears a censure that insults him. That is, he labels what Job said as a rebuke, a censure, a correction, but this Job and instruction is insulting to Zophar. Job has stepped on Zophar's shame, and this must be answered. Zophar must defend himself. A spirit of understanding prods him and pushes him to respond. Now this is telling, for it colors Zophar's monologue here as being more than just about Job, but it's also about himself. He's defending his own honor. He feels offended, and he's driven by his emotions. Zophar is no longer a doctor trying to help his patient, but he's protecting himself against a malpractice lawsuit. Though having laid down his emotional necessity to say something, now Zophar launches into his argument by giving a rebuke and then his thesis. First, he chides Job for not knowing a timeless truth. This fact has been known or as old as time itself. It's been around since Adam was first placed upon the earth. With this, Zophar highlights both the traditional orthodox doctrine and natural law. That is, this truth is part of the created order, and it's been confessed 
uh, as orthodoxy by the sages throughout history, as did Bildad and Eliphaz, Zophar then asserts that Job cannot be exceptional. It's not possible for Job to be the one exception to natural law and traditional wisdom. It's utter folly to think that the rules apply to everyone else, but not to you, Job. And the doctrine from which Job cannot be exempt from is the short mirth of the wicked. Verse 5 here is basically Zophar's thesis for the entire chapter. The glee of the godless and the pleasure of the profane is brief. Their joy began a quick, quick minute ago, and it lasts but for a moment. Now, this is obviously another presentation of the old retribution principle. The wicked soon perish for their sins. This is the same old tired argument given over and over by Zophar and his two friends. And yet by phrasing it this way, Zophar is countering something Job said earlier. You might remember that Job argued that the wicked often prosper, that the godless rule over the land at times. Thus, Zophar here concedes an inch to Job. He says, okay, sure, I'll admit that the wicked can have joy. They can experience mirth and happiness, but it's very brief. The the merriment of the wicked is a New York minute. Though to phrase it this way, Zophar is actually remarking on Job's past happiness. He was joyful for a time with all his kids and all his success. Job seemed to have it all, but in reality, his enjoyment was just a flash in the pan. For he had been wicked the whole time. Yes, Zophar's implication is that Job hadn't so much committed some recent rebellion, but that he has been evil from the beginning. His previous life of joy was merely a cloak for his inner godlessness. Job's suffering is finally an unmasking of the evil within. Job's pristine resume of piety Zophar implies has been a lie, was all a tall tale. And with this, as his thesis laid out, the, namely the ephemeral, uh, the ephemeral nature of joy for the wicked, now Zophar presents evidence to support it. And he starts off with how the proud must fall, verses 6 through 11. That is, a man's status and stature may reach the heavens, His honorable head may kiss the clouds. International fame and celebrity might write his name in the history books as if it'll last forever. And yet the evil man in his worldly pride will perish like his feces forever. Yeah, what a farmer Zophar. He says he will perish like his own excrement. Moreover, he adds he will like a dream, he will fly away, and none will see him again. Eyes will gaze upon him no more, for he'll vanish like a bad nightmare. Yes, the pride of the wicked both die and is forgotten. Moreover, he goes on, the kids will end up begging from the poor, and all his wealth he gained in life will be given back. 
And then he will meet his untimely end, even in the vigor of his youth. The arrogance of the immoral dies young, and his kids' teeth are set on edge. Now, clearly, this presentation isn't the exact size of Job. His kids are dead, not begging from the homeless. And yet, even if it's baggy, this example still fits Job. Namely, according to Zophar, Job's hubris had to fall, and it did. Though next, Zophar changes his imagery for the brevity of wicked joy to that of food and eating, verse 12 and following. He says, evil is sugary sweet in the mouth of the wicked. Like hard candy, the impious just do not want to swallow their savory sin. He holds it under his tongue. He hides it in his cheek. Now, hoarding delicious food in your mouth is definitely a short-lived joy. Not wanting to swallow your dessert, lest you lose its wonderful flavors, is kind of being addicted to hedonism. It is both vanity and gluttony all in one lollipop. Yet look what happens when this fine cuisine hits his stomach. That high fructose corn syrup turns his belly. It transforms, literally, he says, into the venom of cobras. The sweet becomes bitter. The tasty turns to poison. The wicked man swallowed wealth. His dinner fare was so expensive, he might as well have swallowed pieces of gold. But he gets food poisoning and he vomits. God himself, according to Zophar, purges the delicacies of evil from his stomach. The guy basically suckled on a snake. He nursed a viper's toxin. And when you sip on snake venom, you die by the serpent. Now remember, Job protested that his body, his physical health, was speaking lies about him. But Zophar says, no, your body is right. You are sick as a dog because your previous diet of evil has given you food poisoning. Job's indigestion is proof that he savored evil like sin-infused candy. And Zophar stays with this imagery as he continues to wax on about the ephemeral joy of the wicked. Note he says the wicked will not enjoy cool rivers. He will not taste of the streams of honey and cream. Now, this imagery plays off the blessings of the covenant. As remember, the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey, and God leads his people by the streams of living waters. These are the real blessings of God, but the wicked never really enjoy them, nor should they. The wicked may experience some success, a measure of profits, but vanity will forbid him to enjoy it. The fruit of his toil he'll swallow, or he won't be able to swallow, and the profits from his business will bring him no pleasure. This is called a vanity curse. That is the frustration not to enjoy the gains that you earned. But again, as Zophar lays out, he did, after all, or at least this wicked man, crush the poor. He stole homes instead of build them. His belly may have been full, but it was never at ease or at comfort. Namely, that the wicked man was plagued by the IBS of his wickedness. 
Thus, even when his excess is at its fullness, he was in distress. When the wicked man appears most happy and rich, he was actually the most miserable. With this, so far, doesn't merely assert that the mirth of the wicked is short-lived, but it's also a facade. It was never quite real. The wicked look happy. He says that he's joyful and wonderful, and yet he's merely suppressing his upset stomach. He's in self-denial on how bad he feels. Job only thought he was happy, but he was only lying to himself. And with the wicked so despicable, Zophar now starts calling judgment down upon him. Verse 23. Yet here, in, in verse 23 and following, Zophar is basically praying that he's asking God to punish. <clears throat> he's calling God to do what is only right and just to do to the wicked. Thus he says, literally, may his belly be filled with such trouble. Let God send his wrath on him. May God rain blows upon him. And the fury that Zophar summons from God on the wicked is fairly extreme and intense here. He first calls for the wicked to be impaled. He says, let him flee from an iron weapon, but a bronze bow shall pierce him. Now, only the arms of God can bend a bronze bow, and with this superpower bow, he will shoot an arrow right through the wicked. Then an unsheathed sword will be drawn and run through the wicked, and its bright blade will bore through his gallbladder. Then the terrors of dying in battle will overcome him. But there's more. Next, Zophar prays for a divine fire to torch the wicked and the last survivor of his tent. Note here it says a fire not fanned. A fire not fanned is an eternal flame that comes from heaven. Now, this could be lightning or some other species of divine fire, but it devours and allows none to escape. Next, Zophar asserts how heaven and earth will testify against the wicked man. Heaven will expose his sins, and earth will stand against him. With this, he refutes two things that Job said earlier, or at least tries to. In chapter 16, Job called the earth to to amplify his cry of innocence. As well as right there, Job expressed faith and a heavenly witness, to argue his uprightness before God. Well, Job looked for heaven and earth to help him, so Zophar asserts that Job is deluded. Heaven and earth won't help him, but there'll be witnesses condemning him. Finally, Zophar calls for the floodwaters to roll over the wicked. Let the flood drown his house. The gushing waters will swamp him in the day of God's wrath. First, Zophar called for fire, which echoed Sodom. Next, he prays for a deluge of wrath, as it happened in the flood. And these references are significant as they point to God acting in history. God pouring out the judgment of the final day within history upon the wicked. This is what Zophar refers to. Thus, Zophar goes beyond 
the intrinsic consequences for sin. That is one way the retribution principle work is by the natural nexus between deeds and consequences. That is, if you're lazy, you get poverty. If you take drugs, your health suffers. These are somewhat automatic consequences for foolish, sinful, and unhealthy behaviors. But another way is by God intruding into history with explicit curses and judgments, like with the flood, like with Sodom, and other grand military defeats. Thus, Zophar affirms that God doesn't merely let the wicked reap what they sow, but the Lord intervenes with vivid providential ruins. And clearly, he's applying this to Job. In chapter 1, a fire fell from heaven to burn up his sheep and his shepherds. Random gangs just happened to plunder Job's stuff on the same day? And a mysterious massive wind destroyed the house and all of Job's kids? These are too many coincidences in one day to be a coincidence. Thus, Job was judged by the Lord like Sodom, because according to Zophar, he was basically wicked like the city of Sodom. And Zophar concludes, such is the lot and portion of the wicked man directly from God. God decreed this fate for evil sinners, and it matches Job to a T. Thus, Job needs to stop kicking against the goads. His sufferings and his loss were God's lot for his sin. Job's a sinner, and he has no ground to expect anything else from the hands of God. This is Zophar's second speech. And this is what his feelings were compelling him to voice. And from what he said, he's being quite repetitive. For this is basically the same thing Eliphaz said and Bildad too. Eliphaz argued that the unrest of the wicked is continual. Bildad posted that the wicked have perpetual desolation. And now Zophar posits God's sudden vengeance on the ephemeral mirth of the wicked. And their reasoning is getting a little tiring. And yet, we can't say that there's no truth in what Zophar says. There is no doubt that God's wrath has broken into history at times. Sodom is proof enough for this. Sinners die young. Yeah, this can happen. Evil people suppress their uneasy bowels with partying and feasting. For sure. Gluttony can become poison. Definitely. Nevertheless, with these pieces of the truth, Zophar still is not on point. He isn't properly speaking to the question on the floor. The issue as presented by Job is that being upright, he is suffering undeservedly. The narrow point is, can you be upright and suffer not for sin? This is why Job referred to Lamentations 3 so many times in the last chapter. For there was a righteous man suffering under God's wrath. Job is not arguing for a rule, but for an exception. 
Sometimes the righteous suffer and not for sin, as in his case. But Zophar, with his platitude theology, asserts that the wicked always suffer, that there's only one predetermined, decreed portion for the wicked from God, namely wrath. And all his joy of the wicked turns into poison. All his wealth will be plundered, and he will perish like his own manure. This is the only way it is. Suffering means this alone. And yet, besides veering wide, Zophar's presentation here basically excludes repentance and mercy. No, Zophar doesn't mention the possible conversion of the wicked. He offers no hope to such a sinner. Rather, wickedness is presented as an immutable characteristic. It's just who you are. It's God's foreordained portion for you. In chapter 11, Zophar offered repentance as an option for Job, but no longer. Now Zophar pegs Job as a lifelong incognito sinner. He has been mysterious, he has been notoriously uh, evil, hidden by a happy facade, and this has finally been exposed. Thus, Zophar's retribution principle allows for no mercy or grace. It presents God only as judge, punishing the wicked and rewarding the righteous. It gives no nod to God as Savior. Zophar's counsel is basically that God is all law and no gospel. And such reasoning is an active assault upon Christ and his work. First, there has to be a category for the righteous person having suffered. Tradition or tribulation and obedience may seem to be contradictory according to the retribution principle and its reasoning. But under the common curse, God has made clear room for this paradox particularly so that Jesus Christ could suffer wrath as the righteous one. As you know, many Old Testament saints were not perfect, but being relatively upright, suffered for their good deeds. Moses did, Joseph, David, Jeremiah. These were friends of God that experienced hardship and not for sin. But these Old Testament examples are types of the reality. Christ himself, they foreshadow the cross. Where Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, he was holy without deceit upon his mouth. And Jesus wasn't just attacked by the evil one, but he was forsaken by God. Jesus suffered under the hand of the Father, and it was not for his sin. The exemption that Zophar will not allow, that will not allow, is the exemption by which we are saved. Undeserved suffering that Zophar feels is so contrary to God himself is how the Son of God earned the highest name above all, Jesus. In a sense, Zophar is offended by the gospel. 
in his pure retribution theology of the law, he confesses that God is just, and he confesses that God will never justify the guilty. It just cannot be this is heretical doctrine. And yet at the cross, the father did what seemed impious. He did justify the ungodly by faith in Christ. A just judge cannot declare sinners righteous. But this is exactly what he did to us. And God was not unjust in our justification because the righteous one satisfied justice for us. Zophar could not understand that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly in Christ. Indeed, the exemption to the retribution principle, the righteous suffering, is the door that flings open for us all mercy, forgiveness, and grace. The gospel of Christ makes possible the grace of God to us to treat us not as our sins deserve. At the end of the day, none of us are righteous. Job has already admitted that the common sins of humanity are his. Thus, Zophar is no more upright than Job. If the retribution wrath of God was as neat as Zophar presents it, all would die young. Zophar would fare no better than any other. But in common grace, God explicitly overlooks the sinful lives of the wicked to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel and repent. God delays judgment for the sake of the gospel. And in special grace, Christ deals with us all of grace. Even as believers, we commit sin, and some of them can be quite bad. But Christ doesn't wipe us out for one or even many missteps. Instead, he's patient with us. He tenderly forgives us over and over. He slowly disciples and refines us to conform to his image. This is the sweet mercy and grace of Jesus for you. It's one of pervasive gospel and kindness. And it is not the cold counsel of Zophar that is all law. Therefore, Christ has saved you from the wages of your sin. Jesus shepherds you continually in grace to bring you to himself. And Christ does this for our great salvation because he is the righteous one who suffered and died for you. Thus, let us rejoice in Jesus Christ, the name above all names, and his never-ending grace towards us. For without Christ and his obedience, there would be no hope. But in him, we have the hope that never dies, the hope of the resurrection.